0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip.
1: So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks.
0: I'm going to Poland to help
1: feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag ChefsForUkraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember hashtag ChefsForUkraine.
2: Hello, and welcome to Snacking Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we are joined by Bruscha. Brusia is the founder of Thirsty Thirsty, a Web3 food and wine social club. She is a child of Brazilian indigenous, Portuguese, and adopted Jewish ancestors. Thirsty Thirsty was founded in 2014, offering a natural wine-focused wine club, events, and consulting. Bruxa holds a WSET Level 3 accreditation with distinction. Thirsty Thirsty celebrates ancestral ag through food, wine, and earth adventures. Members become VIPs at top restaurants and wineries around the world, have access to fine wine NFTs, all the while supporting indigenous communities at the same time. Then multi-instrumentalist Emily Wells joins us for a chat and live performance from songs on her upcoming album, Regards to the End. We talk about creating art out of disaster, her process for writing an album, and sharing comfort in her songs. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes here on HRN.
3: We talk about food,
1: we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the book.
2: the Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Craig Bresnitz. On today's episode, we have Brucia, the founder of Thirsty Thirsty, an incredible natural wine, web three NFT club that we're going to get a complete deep dive into. But first and foremost, Brucia, welcome to Snacky Tunes.
4: Thank you so much, Greg. I'm stoked to be here.
2: Yeah. So let's, let's go back I believe 2019 is how you found yourself at the beginning of your natural wine journey. Can you set the stage for us? Uh, do you remember your first sip? Do you remember how it transformed you? Do you remember your like the first glass, or was it a bit of just like a, a slow, a slower journey?
4: I do, and I have to correct you. I've actually been in natural wine since I was 18, so it's been. 12 years, 12 long years, Greg. I stand corrected. Uh, <laughs> I stand corrected. Um, 2019, uh, just getting started, um, actually almost leaving wine for a second. But yeah, it goes back to when I was 18, uh, 2013, actually. And I do very much remember kind of my epiphany moment where. I was helping to open a restaurant called the Fat Radish in New York City. I was a mere student kind of scrounging my way around the hospitality scene of New York City and tasted um, Heredia's La Verde Poet, um, which is a wine that has since become kind of this reoccurring theme in my life. It'll just kind of reappear in these different moments. Um and often really beautiful ones. So I very much like remember tasting that wine and just having my mind blown and my taste buds illuminated. <laughs> and it kind of just started from there, this like chase and this hunt. Um, not just for that kind of flavor experience, but there was just a very strong feeling that there was a deeper energy going on here. There was a liveliness and uh, a joy that I had never really felt before from any other beverage.
2: And back in 2013, I mean, this isn't, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, but being a woman in the field, you've talked about how there were extreme barriers to entry um, for anyone to take you seriously, give you an opportunity, give you a taste. um, What was the situation and what were you facing um, as a young woman trying to break into this field?
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I was underage.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Barrier number one.
4: Yeah. So first of all, I was underage, but yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, it was a very different wine scene. I think natural wine was very much also kind of on the fringe. It was much smaller, um natural wine just generally was thought of as this like punk uh energy kind of movement going on that didn't really have any place in real restaurants um and was more just this like party beverage or this kind of memory of french vibes it was just a very different thing um and you couldn't really find it that many places Um, certainly not on that many lists. There were only a few locations really even championing the category, um, windows of the world is like one of those references for sure. Um, which doesn't exist any longer, but yeah, I mean, it was just a men's place, a very white place. Um, and definitely this context of, you know, you had to be kind of this learned academic, Accredited wine beacon in order to have any kind of real authority in a hospitality space. Um, and so I had none of those things. Um, but I just felt this energy and this like electricity to the wine that kind of captured me. Um yeah. And I guess some of the places that, well, I kind of was like naive about it as well. I just kind of followed that enthusiasm. Um, and especially being really young, there weren't that many other like young folks in the wine scene (laughs) as well. And so I actually ended up finding out about this guy named Eric Railsback, who was this young 24, 25 year old sommelier in San Francisco, which is my hometown. And I ended up making a Twitter account, (laughs) um, and just tweeting at him, um, to, to try to get a wine job <laughs> and I successfully got a hold of him I was home for winter break um, and swung by what turned out to be RN74 one of the most iconic wine programs of all time in the United States uh, which is no also no longer in existence and I swung by the restaurant to like drop off my resume and basically made an interview for myself and ended up with a Three and a half month stage the following summer when I was home.
2: Amazing. And what were, you know, what were some of the lessons learned from that stage that you still carry today?
4: Yeah, that stage was really, really eye opening. It was very much this top program of. Epic Burgundian wines, which were kind of revolutionizing the higher end wine scene, moving it away from, you know, the Bordeaux's, the Bordeaux kind of prestige bottle worship, and and kind of showing a, what I think at the time felt like something a little bit more uh, welcoming. Like the Burgundian way of being is, is still quite blue blood, but is like was definitely more of the land, kind of the paysan energy. Um, But when I was there, it just was very clear, you know, I was working with some really, really brilliant folks. Um, I learned pretty quickly that I wasn't really that interested in the choreography of being a sommelier or the studying of being a sommelier. And I learned that I actually felt the most comfortable when I was talking with winemakers and getting to talk about the land and um, hear stories about the earth from the incredible winemakers that would come through this restaurant, um, really like profound, brilliant folks um, like the Alex Dumontis of the world um, who I had no, I had no idea like who these people were or their mark on the generational wine, his generational wine history, really. But I just found that from spending time with them, that is really where my heart, opened and i felt the most inspiration um the inspiration didn't even really come from tasting these rare bottles or you know selling some really expensive wine on the floor it was through people and stories of their culture
2: and so after working on both coasts you found a way to Lyon, france where you were definitely of age so one yes. barrier <laughs> removed um, Talk to me a little bit about that trip. Um, you know, you, you've mentioned before in other interviews that um, Sebastian, who you worked with, was one of like the first men to openly embrace you and teach you and treat you like an equal. What was the experience? Where did you work, and um, what did you what did you take from your time there?
4: Yeah, yeah, it was cool. I I had some other experiences bef- in New York with different programs, and it was just kind of always uh, hard to. Yeah, as we were saying, get taken seriously, and so I kind of decided, oh wow, well, if my heart is most excited when I'm hearing about the land, maybe I should actually go and be there and see see if that's for me. And so I actually even thought that maybe I wanted to be a winemaker, um, and moved to France. Ended up working for a really awesome guy named Sebastien Millaret, who runs Au Vendange in Lyon, France, which is a really wonderful, wonderful wine cave. And it was with Seb where I was, A, learning French really fast, and B, every week we would be visiting a different region of the country, um, meeting with different incredible natural wine producers, getting to have lunch with them, walking the vineyards and like this really, really intimate way, of building relationship. And that is, that's where I learned just the most, um, was really from being in the vineyard with the winemakers themselves and through Seb's generosity to bring me along. And then we would bring the wines back to the cab. We'd be pouring them all weekend and, um, one day he just turned to me, he was like, why don't you take the keys? (laughs) He was like, you have all these cool friends, like, why don't you just do something in the cab? And it was really like the first time where, um, especially like a man in the business, I felt like saw me as, you know, a smart, contributory, talented person with an opinion perhaps, um, or unique perspective and just kind of gave me the license to, to run with it. Um, and so I started throwing parties, (laughs) which, which later became thirsty, thirsty. (laughs)
2: Um, what were the protean parties for thirsty, thirsty, like in the comp?
4: Yeah. I mean, it was really exciting. I mean, it was a cool time where, you know, Leon has this really vibrant design and music scene. All of our friends were these fantastic uh, Beaux-Arts, you know, post-grad students, um, these amazing print designers, amazing animators, amazing musicians, um, architects, just really cool group of people from all over the world. Um, and so I started throwing these parties, which definitely became the template for future ones. So we would... And so I still do parties like this, kind of this sequential wine tasting format where we would choose or I would choose like five different exciting wines, often inspired by wherever I had been that previous week or two. And we would um, make some cool snacks, make a great playlist, choose a theme, and uh, we would pour pour a bottle for everyone I would spiel on it a little bit. Then we'd turn the music back up. Everybody would party and we would do rounds of rounds of this until we went through all the wines. Everyone was adequately drunk and we made it to homemade marshmallows or some kind of delightful <laughs> dessert. <laughs> and we'd all spill out into the the square. And um, it was just a really wonderful time. And, and it, yeah, it became this kind of weird half, party, half-discreetly educational, as we say, format of sharing wine. And and it became also this really, I think, I think the thing that has always defined this space is it's, or defined Thirsty Thirsty is that people actually felt like they weren't being talked down to about wine, but rather empowered to connect with it. However, it felt organic and they felt like maybe guided by my prompts and perhaps my passion and enthusiasm to just enjoy the wine and genuinely learn about it. Um, I think so much of what I had seen in other beverage programs or in other like sommelier contexts was this kind of knowledge holding um, where these brilliant, very passionate sommeliers who knew so much wouldn't necessarily share that much or open that knowledge up to an interested consumer. And Thirsty Thirsty was about not dumbing stuff down.
2: Amazing. So you finish your time in Lyon, you go back to New York, and this is where Thirsty Thirsty really begins to take shape. Um, outside of the you know low-key educational, half-party-spilling-into-the-street vibe, what were some of the early goals and ambitions for Thirsty Thirsty? And and what year is this as well?
4: Yeah. So I moved back. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Actually, I realized <laughs> I actually started with wine in 2009, not 2013, which is kind of
2: oh, funny. So we, we were both wrong. Yeah, I messed that
4: up. We're both wrong. <laughs> yeah, it was 2009 when I was at Fat Radish. So... Further back on the timeline, I got back to New York by 2014. So that's where my problem okay. was going. Yeah, by 2014, I um, picked up a job with um, natural wine importers of Vine Selections. It was quite small at the time, um, but definitely already making a mark with um, some of like my favorite winemakers that I had been working with in France with Seb. He was the guy who was bringing them into the U.S. Um, So basically my goal at that time with Thirsty Thirsty was just as a pure creative outlet. I had this importing gig um, where I was a rep on the street doing the grind, uh, literally building an entire (laughs) territory from scratch uh, through the blizzards of New York and through the, the sweltering heat of the summer. Um, and Thirsty Thirsty was just my way to like keep wine fun and to be able to like share it creatively with my community. Um, and then it became a really awesome way to activate with certain buyers that I became friends with, certain chefs that I became friends with through my repping beat. Um, it just became this really fun collaborative space where we could just do something really fun. Um, more focused on the wine and specifically the storytelling about these incredible people, um, and really share, again, like share stories of these places, um, in a way that was both entertaining and delicious and enlightening all at the same time. And as the kind of years and and months
2: rolled by, um, there's a clear deepening of thirsty thirsty from its original mission to taking on like deeper pillars deeper institutional goals um especially around um regenerative movement um ancestral uh, acknowledgement um can we get into a bit like how you have evolved your thinking from natural wine this is exciting really fun in a bottle very lively to an understanding of the impact that agriculture has with connection to our land and how wine is a medium for that.
4: Yeah. I love that question because I think this was the thing that was really hard for me is like going through being in the wine business and trying to make my mark. Also trying to like literally make money as a hospitality professional and as a wine professional, it, um, it just became clearer and clearer to me that like not everybody i don't know becomes a commodity too <laughs> wine became a commodity too and i think i felt a lot of frustration because i felt so inspired by these like deeper stories and the inspiration that i felt from talking with these people or walking these lands and then kind of seeing sometimes that those that power kind of falling flat um because there wasn't really room to necessarily share it beyond my sales meeting with the buyer. Um, and then simultaneously, you know, I think the deepening also just comes from my own self exploration and my own reclamation of my identity um, as Brazilian indigenous person and as uh, exploring like my Portuguese lineage as well and just, understanding my own culture and my own story more and feeling more and more frustrated that there wasn't really space, um, space for that in the New York city hospitality scene at the time or, um, yeah, I think just seeing also the reality that wine is alcohol and that it often can brew this kind of toxic environment of the way we relate to each other. Um, and also the way we don't really relate to each other, that we're just sometimes here to numb and we're there to party or there to push push product um, and, and try to like survive. Um, it was just kind of disheartening. <laughs> and I think that kind of passion that I had just started dying um, as I also kind of was trying to, as I was kind of, Depleting just through my experience living in New York City in that kind of toxic work climate um, and kind of the demands of of what the industry had kind of become. Um, yeah, and and so I think the deepening really happened as I decided to heal myself, um, and then I think that that was catalyzed by the pandemic and Black Lives Matter movement and the protests around George Floyd murder and Breonna Taylor's murder and Taylor McDade's murder. And just this this whole alchemy of pain and learning and self-examination and self-reclamation swirled to actually spit me out into thinking I never wanted to be in the wine business again.
2: (laughs) Let's pause. Let's pause there. Yeah. Um, We're going to take a quick musical break, play something from our archives, and then we'll be back with the second part of our interview.
5: got something to say but the cat's always got your tongue put it off for another day but one day it's gonna come because you keep on holding back I guess then we I ran out of places to be But I can't go home anymore Cause when I see your face It's gonna be the last time I do And it's easier to live this life
2: we left it is something that used to bring fun and joy and was uh, a good time if you will kind of led to a path of toxicity um problems issues that i'm guessing like maybe you can drink away on one night here or one night there but the the problem is still there in the morning um and after kind of establishing yourself and breaking through and you kind of hit the summit like most most people you like, oh, man, there's a lot of problems here. <laughs> I was so concerned about getting my foot in the door. I didn't kind of really realize what the issues were. Um, so you, you kind of, you left us with, you know, what problems the toxicity has on earth. What have you begun to done to figure out how to heal these things and using wine as a medium for difficult, ongoing conversations?
4: I was able to see that, you know, wine. Well, first of all, I think one of the most healing things I discovered is that wine is actually the ancestral plant medicine of pre Christian Europe. Wine was not just grapes, it was this incredible potion of botanicals and um, hallucinogenics that helped us commune with each other and spirit. Um, and it was also carried by the matriarchy. Um, when I learned this and was studying this, um, largely catalyzed also by this book called the immortality key, shout out, great book. Um, I realized like, okay, well maybe I got into wine because it's a way to like heal my own lineage. And actually like there is deep, deep, deep knowledge here. Um, And there's, there's value in healing through joy as well. Um, So basically through my whole like wine career, I think I kind of became known for being obsessed with soil, (laughs) being obsessed, obsessed with geology, um, being obsessed with indigenous grape varieties and stories. um, Yeah. Of like indigenous native flora and fauna I'm also deeply into herbalism. I mean, I grew up in a very unique, kind of crazy, deeply spiritual um, way with my Brazilian birth family. I come from shamanic lineage. Um, I think kind of putting all these things together and having been really frustrated in my wine career prior that like social justice and wine had to stay separate. I was just desperate to find ways to kind of use this incredible network, um, the joy of what wine can be and the storytelling vessel that wine can be to talk about and relate to the broader conversations around our relationship with earth and our real deep interconnectedness, which is a major tenet of all indigenous philosophy, no matter what culture you're looking at around the world. Um, And just as I was developing my own relationship with my indigeneity, I was also in apprenticeship with a traditional indigenous elder in the Sequoia National Forest. And while I was with her, um, I was really trying to understand like, okay, so where does wine fit into these conversations with earth and land? And I started to see that the reason I loved and celebrated and in in certain moments, even worshipped various winemakers was because they were real stewards to me. They were earth guardians to me. In the same way that so many great farmers and even certain amazing restaurateurs or chefs, the way that they source and celebrate and honor and really hold reverence for these ingredients of story, meaning, and real like sweat, (laughs) Um, I started to see how interconnected we all are as well. And so it wasn't just the winemakers. It's actually, I was able to kind of take a step back and be like, okay, like hospitality, food, wine, these are very joyful ways that we celebrate our bodies, celebrate our relationship with earth. And we, we really tend and nourish, um, through food and wine, which, and, and specifically, you know, we all need food. We always need food, but when we do it with love and care, we really make the most delicious ingredients. Uh, We can make the most delicious art and uh, creative kind of iterations as well. And so I just started kind of musing on how we're all more alike than we realize um, and like, there might be some value in us coming together to learn from one another. And I guess the other thing I'll add to that is, you know, there especially like the last few years in the wine business and beyond, I think that we've all been really reckoning with, well, how do we de- actually decolonize our understanding of, of food ways and food pathways? And so much of our, even our language is very Eurocentric. Um, so how do we, broaden and support a real understanding from different perspectives. And I think that's by by recentering ancestral conversations from all over the world as it relates to food so, wine.
2: I mean so beautifully said. Um the question that really comes to mind is knowing all this and having absorbed all of this, um to kind of like have a clear understanding of why you just had that lightning in a bottle, all puns intended, uh, moment, and to actually now understand it, has this changed the wines you serve? And when you serve them,
4: Hmm.
2: how do you present them?
4: That's a really cool question. I mean, you know, it hasn't necessarily changed the wines I serve, but it's my whole relationship to wine has changed for a myriad of reasons. Um, I think I used to be much more dogmatic in many, many ways. I had a big ego death also through the last few years through this, like self rediscovery through like quote unquote, like leaving wine forever and coming back. It's like, I also did a number of like liver cleanses, like this detoxification journey has been on every single level. Um, you know, literally like in my body and spiritually and emotionally. And so I think like the way that I engage with why now is with a lot more compassion and a lot more inclusivity and with a lot more lightness and levity than um, I used to. Um, and so I think that means I'm more tolerant um, and I'm more interested in the exploration I'm also a lot less interested in quantities. <laughs> um, I'm really interested in just offering more intentionality when I am serving wine. I really want to to be able to sit with it, um, to be able to also just enjoy it and be present with it. I think mindfulness has become a really, it's become a theme that we're playing with a lot with Thirsty Thirsty. and. I think I'm just, like, less snobby about wine as well. Um, just trying to, like, connect to that joy again and be yeah, a little bit both lighter and more intentional about the way I engage with it and share it with others.
2: You and I met at East Denver. Um, we have fallen down the Web3 proverbial rabbit hole. Um, we have not so we have... <laughs> Uh, much the same way that we fell down the natural wine rabbit hole. We are, here we are, wherever it is. Um, So I am curious um, how you are bringing Thirsty Thirsty from the kind of Web 2 epoch into Web 3. Um, What tools you're using, how you're bonding your community, um, how you are folding it into the overall vision of what you want to do.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, back to talking about like, Kind of, I think I did also a lot of um, reassessing about how natural wine became so much of my identity, which was a, is a problem. Uh, it was quite problematic because not, wine is not an identity. Uh, it was a job. It was a place of passion, a place of inspiration. And so kind of separating that away from that allowed me, like I was saying before, to see more points of interrelatedness and just that the real thing that I'm trying to to talk about is um, ancestral agriculture. Um, That is the thing that has caught me since I was in high school uh, working in fair trade and being interested in labor and being interested in like sourcing. I'm interested in how do we celebrate ancestral stories and the types of agricultural techniques and knowledge that regenerate earth for the long term and and not just regenerate our soils to carbon sequester which is very exciting and important work as well but how do we regenerate our reverence for the natural world how do we reignite our deep 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 inner knowing that we are nature too and we cannot exist without our feet on the ground Um, so basically where we're at with Thirsty, Thirsty is a very exciting place that feels much more aligned with that true question, that true, true inquiry. Um, so Thirsty, Thirsty celebrates, um, ancestral agriculture through food, wine, and earth adventures. So what I'm trying to do now is bring in my wine community, bring in my hospitality, bring in my chef friends bring in the dope tours and all of these different folks who really walk the walk when it comes to sourcing and thinking about the land and, and supporting the people who are already doing the work, um, to come together, uh, to learn from each other, to help food and wine lovers everywhere come together and learn from them and from these stories and from, um, from people. Um, Really looking to make Thirsty Thirsty connected to intersectional environmentalism in a true way, not just touting that this bottle is more virtuous, which is really flawed, but how do we reestablish our connection to one another and to the land? And so miraculously, (laughs) being like the most analog person ever and having like deep reverence for literally everything that's maybe not digital. Um, I somehow found Web3 and especially the concept of DAOs, like decentralized autonomous organizations and seeing them as like this digital co-op is really, really what inspired me uh, last November. So it has not been that long. Um, When I learned about DAOs and I started thinking about how Thinking about equity and the way that that can really support and transform our economic very flawed economic systems, I just got like very very excited to to learn more about these technologies. And as I did, to me, Web three very much became this new modern technological remembrance of indigenous philosophies um, when I saw that web 3 celebrates the collective collaboration, decentralization, interconnectedness like all of these different things like these are indigenous concepts these are ancient 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 principles of how we are, are at our best as humans not in scarcity mentality but in in knowing abundance. Um, and knowing that abundance is ours to share, and when we do that, we cultivate more. <laughs> like that's the way Mother Earth works, and and we are her children. And so, just seeing seeing that actually, Web three, at least when it's used to its best capabilities, um, actually is just like this new way that we can we can relate that way, and we can um, kind of reembed economics with uh, more with relationships. And make them sacred again. I got really excited.
2: <laughs> Beautiful answer. Um, really, really cool. So where is the future of Thirsty Thirsty? Where are you taking this? I feel like act one was just like entry into natural wine. Act two was entry into self and the, the awakening. What is act three?
4: Yeah, so act three is a really dope membership network, um, an ecology if you will of, you know, all of these people in these my community really that I have seen as land guardians throughout my career and really bringing them together. So what we're doing is we're we're onboarding hospitality and farmers into web3 through bespoke web uh, bespoke workshops that we've made. To kind of filter through there's a lot of there's a lot to know about web3 so kind of filtering it through to teach our communities who have been inherently um excluded from traditional finance we don't want to see that happen again so we're bringing them in we're teaching them about web3 and in return they're offering either in real life spaces or experiences or in activations back to our membership network so we are super excited. We're starting with a dope, like really, really dope group of six partners in the coming weeks. We're going to be bringing them um, some beautiful education experiences and also an opportunity to get to know one another. Um, you know, we've got some really epic hospitality groups, uh, food sovereignty activists, uh, Queer Food Studio, in New York Ediciones. We have um, also. Uh, our indigenous partner in Colombian Amazonas, where a percentage of all of our proceeds will be going to support their work for cultural um, celebration, really. And the idea is not only can we build together uh, interrelated to get to know one another better, to learn from each other's agricultural knowledge um, and ancestral knowledge, but to be able to give every Thirsty for Thirsty for- member access to these locations and these mines um, as friends and family. So we're gonna be launching a crowdfunding membership NFT this June. We're doing it with the uh, renowned wine voice and winemaker, Rajat Par, who's a dear friend and fantastic regenerative winemaker in Central Coast, California. We're working with Marley Culver, who's this incredible artist to make bespoke labels. For the bottles it's going to be really cool and we're we're wanting to just see what happens um we think that if we can be working in a very like supportive and collaborative way with these folks who are you know curious to enter the space and who have been really dedicated to regenerative farming throughout their own lives and in their own corners of the world um Not only can we give like really cool experiences to food and wine lovers, but we can be creating our own circular economy um, that supports this kind of agricultural work, um, supports the storytelling and can hopefully create more financial sovereignty and flexibility for communities who have been really ravaged um, by capitalism and by the pandemic and you know, especially for indigenous community, um, you know, are a constant, constant, uh, collision with corrupt governments. Um, you know, like their like indigenous communities' literal existence is like as activists <laughs> because they are, you know, fighting for their culture and fighting for Mother Earth because they know we are in kinship. <laughs> So I'm just super excited to be able to create a membership network that is baked in with, um, you know, these social justice elements and an intersectional environmentalist approach um, and not have to choose between wine and food and joy, but rather use wine, food and joy to celebrate uh, the people who have been doing the work all along and bringing us closer together in the process, I hope.
2: Beautiful answer. Uh, So, where can people find you? How can they get information? How can they be prepared for the the NFT drop in 2022 June?
4: Yeah. Um, So, you can join our Discord. Uh, You can just go to thirstythirsty.org. You can, um, that's kind of like the happiest place to be. You have access to being gold listed. Uh, for our inaugural wine NFT, it's going to be collector Pinot Noir, like the wine itself is exclusive for our membership network, but then you'll also have not only an amazing roster of, um, of participating cohort partners from Denver to Austin, to New York city, to San Francisco, to Columbia and Amazonas to get to meet, enjoy and eat and dine with, Um, but, you know, this is the first cohort of many. So we plan to be really building this awesome network of slow food and um, and of fantastic experiences along the way. So, yeah, get in there, support us. And we're also just really looking for our people, <laughs> people who are excited by what we're doing. Um, you know, Web3 is really about celebrating proactivity and celebrating one another so if this excites you like we are only a message away and we can't wait to meet you and collaborate
2: amazing amazing thank you so much for being on snacky tunes uh we're going to play another song from our archives and we'll be back with the second half here on hrn three
0: This episode is supported by HRN business member Radical Wine, a small neighborhood wine and spirit shop in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, that specializes in natural wine and regional-based spirits. Radical Wine is a shop where community can hang out and listen to records while finding a delicious bottle of wine for any occasion. Grab a bottle from the shop to bring to their sister restaurant, Brooklyn Hots, which is right next door. Radical supports HRN's creative, educational reporting, and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Emily, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so
2: much for taking the time to be joining us from my wonderful hometown of Philadelphia. Shout out.
6: Thank you, Darren. It's a pleasure.
2: So the new album, Regards to an End, it's, I don't want to call it heavy, but the topics it focuses on is is climate change, and AIDS, and in your words, watching the world burn. And I think you could take from it as something heavy, but mm-hmm. as someone who's been, I guess, feeling some of the same things you've been feeling, I found it very comforting mm-hmm. to see those very heavy topics turn into to art and to music. Have you found that response? Was that part of the intention of other people relating and saying, I, I find – Relatability and not being alone with these thoughts.
6: Yes, absolutely. I think that that's part of the response. And I think I just finally, yeah, acknowledging those things, uh, bringing them up. Intentionally in the work, mm. um, right. <laughs> how to make the least appealing album in the world talk about AIDS and climate change, right. Uh, how to make the least appealing album possible, right. Like talk about AIDS and climate change and, uh, you know, the apocalypse. Yeah. I really am going for popularity, um, with that, those topics, <laughs> <laughs> but I, A, I don't know how to make not make work about those things right mm-hmm. now. Um, mostly because that's so much of what I'm thinking about. And uh, the reason why I looked at the AIDS crisis was because I was interested in solutions. Mm. I was interested in, um, you know, tactics, essentially like activism tactics. And um, and then the activism tactics kind of then turned more into just like how do you be an artist during a crisis? Mm. Um and how do you keep making work even though your world is falling apart? And so, um, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of hope inside of those questions.
2: It's interesting. I didn't draw the parallel of looking at the AIDS crisis as something that used to be seen as uncurable, as something that was just this black hole of, of – consumption of people and and culture and things like that mm-hmm. as a parallel to the climate crisis is being like, you can actually find a cure. There can be change. There mm-hmm. can be hope. Um, because I was wondering, you know, AIDS is not the, I don't know, crisis du jour these days, I think in some ways, but people forget about how it used to be front page, the thing that people talked about as the possible end of the world. Sure. Um, Where do you find hope in that? Where do you find art in that? Is it the people? Is it the stories? Is it really digging into it and then saying, this is how it relates to what's going on more today and not to be gauche, but like front page crisis?
6: Mm. Yeah, no, I, from a kind of scientific side of things, in some of my research, I remember having this moment reading about climate crisis and how things that needed to be done now, we might not even see the effects of them for like 30 years. Mm. And then in a similar time frame, reading about um, the first person who had essentially been cured of AIDS
0: mm-hmm. 30
6: years later. And I thought that was a, you know, that was a really interesting parallel in terms right. of big picture thinking, uh, long-term thinking. Um, and Uh, Yeah, a kind of like collective will that was required um, for that cure to come about. Uh, And a lot of people fighting really hard to make it happen and doing all kinds of outlandish and um, yeah, just really wild protests that happened during that time. And Mm -hmm. all the art that was made during that time. And so that also kind of dovetails into how I think about yeah, how to be inspired. Uh, it's, it's also about just how to live, you know, Mm. how do we live as artists, as anybody, I mean, artists, citizens, human beings, um, in this situation in which we have so little control. Um, Mm. and do we, you know, I don't think the solution is just to be really upset about it all the time. You know, um, But I also don't think the solution is to just pretend that it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, a lot of the artists that I was looking at during the time of writing the record were doing just that. They were living. They were making work. They were making incredible work, life-altering work, um, some of it having to do with AIDS, some of it not. Some of it directly having to do with AIDS. Some of it just having to do with the natural world, life cycle, death, birth, like, you know all of the the absence of the other when the op, when the other is gone. You know, and so um, I was, yeah, I was. It was almost like, and and mind you, the pandemic was beginning. Yes, uh, and so I had the idea to make this project quite like a year before the pandemic, and so it was <laughs> really crazy when that happened in terms of just like oh yeah, there's a lot more parallels to be to be drawn as well, and like. Okay, I can't spend every day researching climate crisis and the AIDS crisis, or else I'll go mad. Right. you know <laughs> so i I really did turn a lot more to the artists than I maybe thought I would. I don't know what I thought I was doing. It's not like I'm a scientist who thinks they're gonna like sure. solve the problem <laughs> so
2: but if I remember reading about people who were suffering from this climate crisis fatigue mm-hmm. and one of the the good piece of advice that was said was there will be good days. Mm. And I always love that because especially when you look at these, these larger sort of unsolvable topics in some ways, you have to remind yourself there'll be good days and some things, there will be beautiful things created out of it. And you get your album, but also when you look at the Age project, there's like beautiful art that has come out of that, that probably wouldn't have come out of that if you wouldn't have had this overwhelming I don't know if "prompt" is the right word, but mm-hmm. this this thing staring down at this community of creatives and saying like, "What do you do with this? If it's not run and put your head in the sand, like how do you how do you react to this? How do you take some control back?" And some of that's putting beautiful art out into the world.
6: Right. It's. I mean, it's a su- survival, right? You know. Yeah,
2: yeah. it's a mental and, game. And in some art ways. is
6: always a way that I have learned how to survive. You know, like that's my mm. way in to. Um, yeah. To. to to being myself, to being, yeah, just capable of of getting through the day.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sometimes you go like, I can't control this, but I can, I
0: mm-hmm.
2: can make a song. I can, I can put this into something I can sort of control and rearrange and and put out into the world. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's get into a song. The first song we have up is David's Got a Problem. What's the story behind this track?
6: So this was one of the earliest ones I wrote for the record, and in a way, it was like kind of a guide into how. I would, what the process might be like, Mm. um, in terms of, you know, people don't think of songwriters as doing research necessarily, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how people think of songwriters working. Um, (laughs) but I, for me, there's always been this, um, sometimes overt and sometimes just uh, subliminal connection between literature and art that goes into my process of making. And um, in this case, I was reading a book called The Lonely City by Olivia Lang, hmm. And it's, it's an absolutely gorgeous book of essays that are all related. And she actually talks a lot about the age crisis. She talks about loneliness. She talks about New York. She talks about David Wanarovich who became a real, um, centering guide for me throughout the process of making the record. There are a few songs that are directly related to him. One thing that makes him so interesting is that he is both a visual artist who made really like vivacious, bright activist, like in your face, um, visual work. Uh, but he was also a writer, um, he kept tape journals. He was, you know, archiving his life and experience um, before his diagnosis, during his diagnosis, <clears throat> throughout the death of people around him. And, you know, he eventually died in 1992 himself. Mm. But uh, because he has such, such document of his life, mm-hmm. you just feel that he's just right there. Mm. Um, it, he has a book called uh, Close to the Knives, which um, it's just... Absolutely incredible. And, um, anyway, so I read this, uh, Olivia Lang um, essay about David Wanarovic and I was on tour. I was in Brussels and I, I was staying in this beautiful, bizarre kind of mansion, uh, with this giant church outside, staring down into the windows and, um, a piano in the parlor. And I went in and, and wrote this song, you know, just kind of sobbing and writing and the melody wouldn't leave me. And, um, David Wondarowicz took grass seed to the piers in New York. It was like a cruising ground where oh, yeah. um,
2: those photos are beautiful.
6: Beautiful. Absolutely. Beautiful. Andres, just yeah. Andres the growth Andres in Zierzing. the
2: dilapidation, like that yes. juxtaposition is gorgeous.
6: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So he would, plant this like bluegrass in these falling down piers. And, uh, so the, the song says, throw a little grass out, throw a little seed, then go lie among the weeds. And that's about, um, that act. I think it's kind of related to what we were talking about earlier,
3: mm-hmm.
6: uh, you know, making something beautiful, ephemeral, even, uh, a living thing, um, in the midst of all the, you know,
2: the, the ruins
6: and the ruins. Yeah. yeah.
2: All right, well, here we go. Emily Wells, David's Got a Problem, live on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org.
7: takou
2: a beautiful song um, and I love listening to your music I love the album and uh, I probably won't nail it exactly but there is this soundscape cathartic quality to your music um, and then you know it's not something I feel like one just arrives at I mm-hmm. feel like you mm-hmm. you can sort of some people you listen to music are like oh yeah like it sounds like they got I know that's never the case of just being like, oh, they landed on this, and this is their music style. But it's very obvious with yours. Like, this is th- there's like some fundamental building blocks, and you've, you you could have gone in a few different directions, and you round here. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get to this style of music? Did you start playing at a young age? Uh, did you come to it later in life? Um, how did you land on on this this genre of music?
6: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that you you did kind of nail it in that it. It was a series of building blocks, and uh, yes, I did start playing at a young age. I played violin um, first and piano, and uh, violin kind of became my main avatar and um, but then I got really, really into recording and production, you know, starting with a four track, and um, that became another instrument for me. Mm. And then I, uh, you know, I made this when I was quite young. I made this record called the Symphonies, mm-hmm. and it was how it was all kind of based on how I can do all this live sampling and create this, you know, larger than life orchestral kind of sound in a live setting. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of developed from there. At, at the center, I always believe in the song first. Um, and I have, you know, kind of learned that production isn't the song, (laughs) you know, um, or arrangement or anything like that, that at the heart of everything is a song. Um, and I, Mm -hmm. I think like this record in a way, I really believed that more than anything else, but I also, I kind of like, in a in a way, working alone and not because of the pandemic, I, all my recording sessions with anyone else were virtual. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna write for whatever instrument I want to write for, and then I'm gonna find a player who can mm. do it. You know,
2: <laughs> who can who, who could take my idea and say that's cute. Let me uh let me pro that up a little bit. Nothing wrong with what you did.
6: Uh, well, no. <laughs> I wouldn't put it like that, but um, (laughs) I definitely wouldn't. I would hope that anyone that I gave music to would not say that's cute. Uh,
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I mean. But sometimes you go like, like I'm playing this and I'm good. You're the expert at this one exact thing. Is that why you did it?
6: Well, yeah. I mean, I definitely I I, I can't play the clarinet. And um, so I absolutely wanted to find people who that was their instrument, you know, in the same way that I might play the violin. Um, But yeah, I, I guess I, I would say I had more of, yeah, like a vision for, Mm -hmm. for what it could be. Like I wanted all the wind instruments there because I wanted breath. You know, Mm. we're talking about how the record is so much about life and death. And so I wanted that, the body to be really present. um, And Yeah, and I like just kinda had this like obsession with the clarinet. And I was writing in a way that I never had before, um, using like virtual instruments, like orchestral sample libraries. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Which are so advanced these days. Uh they certainly can't replace the real deal. But Mm -mm. um but they can definitely get you close and then like you said, you can hand it off and um the person who really knows how to play the instrument it's not a computer um, it's, there's no computer in the middle so to speak um, they can, can, can do right by the, it, by the and material. there is that nice
2: thing about especially a woodwind instrument where you can hear as you said the breath or the, the mm. moments in between the notes that add to your structural music which I really like which you can't really get from a computer no. recording mm. you can't get that human element and so, if you have the option to say here's here's the roadmap, but add the human realness to it,
6: mm-hmm. it adds it
2: and adds an extra bit of beauty to it.
6: Absolutely, absolutely. And there were definitely places in the record where I was like, "This is the idea," but like, do your thing, you mm. know. Um, and then there were other things that were like, "This is how it should sound," and um, this is the arrangement. And the drummer, in particular, um, had a lot of freedom. I mean, he just brought so many ideas, um, you know, to the songs.
2: Yeah. I mean, I read that a review that you says you compose a movements. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned mm-hmm. that David's Got a Problem was sort of the first song that you put together to sort of sketch out the album. Um, and a lot of the times now the world is so single focused. So it's so refreshing to hear something when you listen to it start to finish, like, oh, this actually sounds like was a the whole concept was the album not just a bunch of songs put together?
6: Absolutely. Yeah. Is that
2: how you approach, at least for this project? You're, you're saying I'm writing an album and not just a song.
6: Oh, for sure, absolutely, absolutely, and I think this record more than any, and the and the one before it as well. Um, but but yeah, this one was like, okay, this is this is an idea, start to finish. In the end, you're still having, you know, you write the songs one at a time, but, um, I, I wrote all the songs first without a huge sense of how they were going to be arranged or produced. Um, and so that was kind of, there's like, there's, you know, phases, right? And, um, I think you can have the thing where you have a single and like, that's the thing. And then you kind of try to shape things around that. But, um, I knew conceptually how I wanted them all to tie together, but then how, how do they tie together sonically? Right. And, Mm -hmm. um, and how are those two things related? For instance, I, you know, I've, I was looking at the eighties and nineties a lot. So I wanted to use instruments that were made Mm -hmm. during that time. So there's like a, there's a lot of Juno 60 on the record, for instance, Um, a lot of like toothy arpeggiated synth parts, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like old eighties, drum machines um but i didn't want to make a throwback record like that wasn't it you know i was like okay how can i nod to these things um both conceptually and sonically and also i love those sounds so um and then like i was saying you know clarinet obsession happened sure of course and you know to me the clarinet kind of sounds like a synth so you know how can you know bring that in and i usually write a lot for strings and i you know there's strings on the record for sure but Way less than any other record I've ever made, so that was kind of cool too. Just kind of get out of that.
2: And and I will admit, as someone who does not know the era of when certain synths and instruments were made, to know that Mm -hmm. that you're pulling from the '80s and '90s because of the AIDS crisis, and then you're using instruments that were heavily featured in that time is that's that's awesome. Like that is Mm -hmm. just a real. That's a just what a great nod to that era. And then to mm-hmm. say like, but this is how they're not modernized, but you're not doing 80 synth riffs or right, right. 80s runs on the keyboard where you're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, all right, let's get into another song. The next song up is I'm numbers. What's the story there?
6: Sure. So, okay. This one I wrote, this was the first song that I wrote after the pandemic mm-hmm. kind of started bearing down upon us. And I was looking at an artist named Jenny Holzer Oh, I love Jenny Holzer yes. stuff. Incredible. Uh, and
2: incredible.
6: Right. So you know her work. For those mm-hmm. who don't, she writes, she's, writes a lot of uh, truisms, aphorisms. There's a lot of language in her work. Yeah. And um, so this particular piece, she was interviewing people who were dying, chronically ill, many of them from AIDS, not all of them. And she took their statements and they're, they're just kind of r- random fragments or sentences, and she carved them onto these enormous sort of sarcophagus looking mm. sculptures and um one of them says i need to lie front to back with someone who adores me mm. and there was this feeling of such loneliness during that time i have a partner and i was so lucky i felt so lucky to have a partner during that time yeah um and not everyone did. And there was this lack of touch, even for those of us who had partners, you know, mm-hmm. this, and that was so related to the AIDS crisis, the fear around touch and fluids and uh, even drinking after someone or being in the same room. And um, that ache, you know, to be to be near to someone, um, I think, was realized in really specific, uh, palpable ways um, in our you know, in humanity collectively at that time. Um, so I took that line um, and it's part of the song. And then, you know, the numbers is is related to the ways in which mm-hmm. um, that's just kind of grotesque blankness of the numbers and the counting about how many cases and how many deaths. And um, it continues to this day. Um, there's also a piece that I was looking at by an artist named Felix Gonzalez-Torres who... Mm-hmm. Made a piece called um, "Untitled uh, Ross in LA," and it was—it's a, a pile of candy that is placed in the corner of the gallery of the museum, and um, it weighs 172 pounds or something like that, which is the weight of his uh, partner in good health, Ross. And uh, the you know gallery goers are invited to take a piece of candy away, and so it's mm. about diminishing, but then it's also about Um, replenishment because the museum is asked to replenish. So it's kind of at once about, you know, the withering uh, realities of illness, but also immortality. So,
2: Mm. yeah. All right. Well, here we go. I'm numbers playing live by Emily Wells here on snacky tunes on HRN.org. So you just announced you're going on a sizable tour Mm -hmm. at the end of April, which is really awesome. And, uh, you know, obviously touring has not really happened. Is this your first large run post-pandemic? Are you excited to get back on the road?
6: Yes. Yes, it is my first large run. I went... Uh, out with some friends to just like sing and play sense and violin for like three weeks in November with a band called Japanese Breakfast.
2: Oh, shout out. Yeah. F- Philly as well.
6: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um,
2: she had the uh, coat room at uh, named after her.
6: Yes. At Union Transfer. At Union
2: Transfer. Shout out to Sean too.
6: <laughs> yeah, no, um, we, had a, we had a really good time. I mean, so – I had, I kind of dipped my toe in the water, but I haven't been, you know, responsible for a touring Mm. party. Um, uh, I think there's a whole different level of uh, stress (laughs) around that. But we can hope that, you know, people will wear masks and um, everybody stays safe and careful. And what are you going to do? I mean, I want to, I want to play. So we're going to, we're going to try.
2: I mean, and this album is something that I, I think demands to be played out live.
6: Mm, thank you. Yeah. I hope so. I. I. It's. This is the first time I'll have gone out on a tour and really not never played any of the songs before mm. live. In the past, I've at least done you know a few kind of like pet cities that um, will forgive me for testing new material out on them. Um, you know. So yeah, I. I I am so interested in the ways in which the songs are going to change and grow and, you, you know, just become more themselves. Um, I've had – there's always a period when you're – you've released the record and then you have to say goodbye to it. It's awful. Right. You know, it's it's really hard. Run free, <laughs> and, my
2: child. Out into yeah, the world.
6: Right. And you, you're you kind of sick of the songs because you spent, you know, however many months just obsessing over them. and But you're also – kind of protective of them and <laughs> and so um the getting to play them live is a way to reclaim them and and watch them become part of other people's imaginations and I think that's so exciting.
2: Yes. I uh I mean I assume that you have a relationship with the way people listen to them and it's on the album and it's recorded and it's very purposeful versus being out live and there's only so much you can control in the live environment or people talking during the show, you're playing in different order. You know, there's always that like sure. live chaos that's going to happen. Yeah. Um. How do those responses work together? Both the, the people's response to the recorded prod product, finished product as the album versus like playing it out live. Do the, do the, is it symbiotic? Does it work off each other?
6: I think so. I mean, because people get to create their own relationship to the song before they go to the mm. live show so hopefully i'm playing songs that they have created relationships
2: sure with. positive um, ones at that too
6: yeah right exactly uh but yeah i mean i am really a fan of making the live thing its own thing like i don't I don't need to go to a show and listen to people play the record exactly as it is.
2: I, so, I, I, I appreciate that,
6: yeah, I, and I, I'm kind of interested in like, okay, what is a song? Do, mm. how how can it's how far can I get away from the the record and its essence is still there enough that it gives people the feeling of listening to something they know and love. Mm. you know, um, so I think I push those <laughs> push those borders a little bit. And the further away I get from a record, the less, you know, close it's going to be. So, you know, this record, there will definitely be a lot more um, little production elements that are familiar. Um, But yeah, and, and, you know, I can't bring the, you know, if I could bring an orchestra, then. Sure, you can't bring
2: the clarinet guy or girl on the road.
6: Well, actually, I am bringing the clarinet guy. There you not go. The, you know what?
2: I shouldn't not- have picked that instrument because I. you said how much you loved it. You're like, I'm going to bring one person with me.
6: I'm bringing out three people. Okay. Um, which is a first. I've never toured with more than a trio. And I am very excited to see what that's going to feel like. I, You know, for those of those listeners who don't know what I do live, it's – I have kind of like a whole space station that I build. There's like It's very cool. It's very cool. Uh violin. There I do a lot of live sampling. There's you know, it's I'm very busy, let's say, on stage.
2: You're doing layered samplings, right? Yes. Where you're playing exactly. it and then you're 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 building the different parts of the song
6: live. Exactly. And I don't it's not just like a looping act, like there's it. <laughs> Just to be clear, because yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's no, a, no, no, That conjures something very I get specific. you. No, of course. <laughs> um, but um there that that happens. There's live sampling or looping that happens, but there's also, yeah, like you're being pulled along. Um, and the songs are hopefully um concise enough that you're not like, okay, we get it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, um I don't, you know, there's I don't want to completely divorce myself from that process uh but I also want to like move around on stage and be like a little more free and I really wanted those clarinet parts to see the light of day so Mm. um I've recruited a, a man named Alex Spiegelman who is like an insane multi-instrumentalist. He plays mm. bass clarinet and clarinet and flute and the drummer also plays flute and there's going to be a bass player. You know, we're all going to sing. Like I think the thing I'm most excited about is all the vocal harmonies. Mm. Um I've never had a band that sang with me before, so um so yeah. The there you know, we're working on all those arrangements now and um trying to visualize that. The first part of the tour I'm doing solo because I'm opening up for a band called Sunlux um so yeah, I'm in like four different mindsets right now um, because I'm also arranging it for orchestra. Um, so yeah, there's going to, there's, there's, there's a lot of iterations, which is exciting.
2: I love it. It's great. It's great to see people. I've definitely moved back into live music away from DJs in the last few years mm-hmm. and going out to see live. And I just, I just, cause there's even some live projects where that's very electronic heavy or pre-programmed heavy. And you're like. Oh, this is the album. Okay, cool. Like it's cool, it's very perfect, but sometimes I want to see a little bit of this space in between where it's not so perfect and there there's some real creation happening on stage.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I I love that. And that's like where there's room for improvisation mm-hmm. and <laughs> chaos and <laughs>
2: Yes, chaos is a great word. Controlled chaos mm-hmm. is something where you're like is this going to come together and then it does and it's it's <laughs> it's great. Um you know, being on the road, I have to imagine there's probably some towns and some restaurants and some food you're looking forward to getting back to. Uh, what have you been dreaming about now that you're getting back? Because this, this tour is taking you all across the country.
6: I mean, tacos in the south, obviously. Of
2: course. I mean, number ding, <laughs> ding, ding, number one answer.
6: Yes, yes. Um, I The tour that I went on in the fall was in that part of the world. And, you know, it's just – they can't do it like can't do that anywhere else
2: i know it's it's so interesting when you go to these other cities and you're like cuz food has now become especially in philadelphia where you have such great food and and mm-hmm. and and very niche specific uh ethnic or regional food that's come to the city and then you go to these small towns in america and you're like nah no one does it quite like quite like the place of origin
6: right i mean i yep yeah, exactly there's this the taco truck in San Antonio that I keep thinking about. Mm. And also weirdly in Pomona, this like amazing Oh yeah, glasshouse. Yeah. In California. Radio- yeah. Exactly. Um that I mean actually Pomona is kind of amazing. The, the food. And then also like there's this wild synth shop and there's record stores. I mean it's just like this little I mean bathroom. they can
2: they can thank the golden voice Radius Claws for having <laughs> having the scene that they have because uh, it's yeah. just like it, it's literally like on the edge of where if you're playing a big festival in LA you can go go hit Pomona
6: right right exactly exactly
2: um, well Emily thank you so much I want to make sure that we have enough time for one more song Uh, but before you enter it where can they find you where can they find tickets on tour where can they listen to the album
6: sure well I mean uh, you can go to my website emilywellsmusic.com and that will lead you all the places you need to go
2: Amazing. Um, so two dogs tethered inside is the last track that you're gonna play for us. What's the story there?
6: Um let's just I'll keep it I'll keep it short. Uh it's about freedom and what do you do Mm. when you get it?
2: Man. Well, we'll end it right there. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and play some songs and share some stories. Uh really great. Congrats on the album. It's a beautiful listen. So here we go. Emily Wells, Two Dogs Tethered Inside, live on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org. We'll see you next time.
3: talk about food
1: we talk about music with musical dudes finger on the pulse snacky tunes
3: this program is powered by simplecast
4: thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter